I'm going to do something a little bit different in our sermon message today. Not a huge difference, but something I don't typically do is I'm going to sit down for some of it. Partly because my back's been messy this week, but actually the, the bigger reason is I feel like this message today is something that at certain points we're just going to need to sit down and just have a conversation about. Because we're going to chat about something that, that's, that's hard, that's pretty challenging. The lesson we have today, it's, it's the life of Joseph. And I mentioned before the service, just a little reminder that we are in this final leg of this sanctification series where we're talking about living our lives of faith. And uh, the verses we end up going through today, there's kind of an interesting backstory as to why we're going through them. Um, so Pastor Krause had selected Joseph for the lesson today. But when he and I were chatting on Monday, he said, you know, the lesson, it says it's from chapter 50, and that's where we want to study, but it seems like maybe, maybe the verses I noted down were the wrong verses. And so he and I talked about, well, which one should we do? And we ended up choosing these verses for a very specific reason. We chose these verses because something we hear from you, maybe not every one of you, but we've often heard, is that one of the big challenges in your life in your lives, is how do I forgive people who've wronged me? I'm struggling to forgive them. Or this thing happened, and I'm really having a hard time. It's just, it just still sticks with me. It still plagues me. This, this thing happened, and it's just, and it hurts. And there's this wound that is there, and it can really paralyze a life of faith or paralyze relationships. And so we said, you know what? With how often we hear people say this, we need to preach on these verses this weekend. We need to talk about Joseph and the hurt he experienced, but then also the incredible thing that the Spirit does in his life, which is something that the Spirit wants to do in all of our lives. Because like we've said a few times already in this service, the forgiveness of the gospel is not just between us and God, but it also reconciles us with each other. So today we're going to look at a lesson that shows us how our God in our lives of faith, he is healing hearts. The lesson we have is Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 to 21. It says, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now, our lesson for today, it, it moves ahead a couple generations from where we were last week. Last week, we were talking about Abram and this man who got it called and made this promise to that I'm going to turn you into a great nation. Through you, all the peoples of the world are going to be blessed. I'm going to give you this land. And so he's really the, the, the man that God said, I'm going to turn you into this nation. I'm going to bring the Savior through. I'm going to bring healing to the world through you and your descendants. And we talked about that journey that he went on last week. Well, to get us to this week's lesson, we've got to go now to his grandson, Jacob. His grandson, Jacob, is this, this man who had a number of notable things, memorable things happen in his life. But the one that really want to draw out for us today is that when Jacob was going, getting ready to face someone actually who he had wronged, his brother, while he was there that night, he ended up wrestling with this man all night, this stranger, who ended up not being just any man, but actually ended up being God himself. He wrestled with God 
throughout this night. And at the end of the wrestling, this man, God, says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. So this man, he's Abram's grandson, becomes his name now becomes Israel, which then becomes the name of God's people. This man, Israel, has 12 sons. We have the 12 sons of Israel, which will then become the 12 tribes of Israel. As this nation grows, as the descendants grow, his sons, each of their descendants, then become Reuben's tribe, Simeon's tribe, Levi's tribe, and so on. I put in here two smaller names by Joseph, because if you read through the Old Testament, you're not really going to find all the tribe of Joseph. Well, what you will find, though, is a half-tribe of Manasseh, or Ephraim, those are Joseph's two sons. So that's how the, 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 his clan, his tribe, gets referred to after his life. You have the half-tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim. Joseph, interestingly enough, then, is our main character, our main human character in our lesson today. Joseph was this favorite son of his father Israel. Every family has unique dynamics, Right? Everyone. I love, so often people say, like, man, my family is weird and they're really messed up. I'm like, join the club. Everybody's family is messy. Like, the quicker we can embrace that, the quicker we can feel a little better about our own because every family has quirks and weird things we all do. You can imagine how magnified it was when you've got 12 of them and, uh, and 12 of them with different mothers and different, that's a whole story we don't need to get into today. But you have one who's clearly the favorite. And it becomes clear even by what his father gives him. He gives him this beautiful multicolored robe. And this is one of those stories that even if you don't grow up in the church, probably have heard about, right? Because you hear of like Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat and all that stuff. That's this story. You know, he's got this beautiful robe. So it stands out he's the favorite. But then to, make, to magnify things, he has these dreams where basically there's these stalks of weed and stuff, and they, 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 there's 12 of them, so clearly looking at, well, looking at his family, and they, they bow down to him, and, and the stars and stuff in the sky, and they bow down to him, and so clearly it, it's, it's representing his brothers bowing down to him, and then he makes the foolish choice of telling them about it. So word to the wise, if you ever dream that your siblings will serve you, don't tell them about it. Okay? It's just not going to go over well. And it goes over extremely poorly for Joseph. They are so bitter and angry with him that at one point when he comes out to meet them in the field, they start plotting and they're like, we need to get rid of this guy. And they're actually, the initial plan is to kill him. And then to take his blood and to put it on the rope ro and, and to pretend that, that some animal did it instead. Thankfully, one of his brothers is like, oh, that's a little extreme. Let's just throw him in a pit. And he's got this plan that he's going to rescue him later. But in the meantime, his brother Judah says, guys, there are some traitors, some like people who trade slaves and stuff, excuse me, trade slaves and stuff, traveling past. Let's sell him. Let's make some money off of him. So they sell Joseph to these slave traders. Then they tell their father that Joseph was killed by an animal. And then Joseph is taken off to Egypt. Talk about hurt. 
I mean, in some ways, like as I talk about it, I feel like I kind of sell it short even a little. Like it's, you know, I mean, we've all been hurt in various ways, but just, just to, to try to imagine the emotional turmoil of Joseph, to go from being his father's favorite to then having your brothers throw you in a pit and then to sell you off. And then like, the, like what's going to happen to me? Where am I going to be sold? What's going, what is it going to be like? I mean, the betrayal... Even if your brothers and you didn't get along that well, to think that they would sell you off and you go from being your, favorite, your father's favorite son to being a slave in a foreign land. There's a lot of hurt here and a lot of healing that needs to happen. But then some interesting things happen when he gets down to Egypt. So he gets down to Egypt, he gets sold to this man named Potiphar, and as he serves him, God blesses the work Joseph is doing. And Potiphar notices and he just keeps, like, elevating Joseph's status in, the, in, in his, his work there. And great things are happening. But Potiphar is not the only one who notices that God's doing good things in Joseph. Potiphar's wife does, too. And maybe it's not even just the good things that God's doing through Joseph. She just notices Joseph. And she's like, Joseph, sleep with me. And it would have been really easy for him to do so. But he doesn't. He says, how can I do this thing, sin against my Lord, sin against God? I'm not going to sin against God and sleep with you. So then she accuses him of trying to force himself on her. So he is falsely accused and then thrown in prison. Can you imagine, like, the hurt that he would feel there? And... You know, sometimes when something happens, like really, like a tra very traumatic experience in your life, and then later something happens that, 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 that maybe isn't exactly the same, but how it stirs up some of those feelings. You know, for him to be there, like the, the feeling of betrayal, like I was doing the right thing. I was doing the good thing, the hard thing. And I still get tossed in prison. I get falsely accused. The hurt that Joseph has got to be carrying. But then he gets in jail, and in prison, again, he, kind of, he rises in status. God is doing great things in him. And then you get this interesting event where you've got these two guys who are workers for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, these close workers for him. One's a cupbearer, and one's a, a chief baker. And uh, <laughs> I was thinking, if I ran a kingdom, the people who brought me food would also probably be my two main guys too, right? Because <laughs> such a... Important. Anyway, you get these two guys, and they have these dreams that are weird in the mouth. And they're like, what do these mean? Joseph, he's like, you know what? Interpretation belongs to the Lord. And, and so God gives him the opportunity to, to interpret it. He interprets that the, for the cupbearer, what this dream means is that in, in a few days, you're going to be back with Pharaoh. It's going to be good. And he's like, all right, awesome. And when that happens, then the baker's like, well, that's a pretty favorable. I, I, I want to hear what mine means. His is the opposite. A few days, they're going to take your life. And this exact thing happens. And to the one, to the, to the cupbearer, Joseph, he sees a window. He sees an opportunity. He's like, okay, all right, when you get to Pharaoh, tell him what I did. Tell him. Like, you got this little glimmer of hope. Like, maybe life can get me out of this prison and all right, okay? Except for the cupbearer forgets. Totally forgets about Joseph. And Joseph sits there for two more 
years. Where were you two years ago? That's how long. Feeling betrayed? Like, come on, man, I interpreted your dream. It happened. All he had to do was tell him. Two more years. But then something starts happening in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh has this dream. It's a crazy dream. And then, ah, cup pair, wait a minute, I know a guy. And he gets Joseph, and God gives Joseph the interpretation of the dream. Tells Pharaoh that what's going on is you're going to have seven years of plenty, and then seven years of famine. You're going to get all kinds of great harvest, and then there's going to be nothing. And so then Joseph says, what you've got to do, Pharaoh, is get somebody to be in charge of storing up all the extra so that over the years of famine, you still have enough. Pharaoh says, well, what wiser man can I have than Joseph? And he puts Joseph in charge, and Joseph becomes basically second in power to Pharaoh. It's this incredible turn of events. And you can just imagine for, for Joseph, some of the healing, he's starting to feel like, okay, it's going in a better direction. It's going in a, in a better direction. But this is where now we're setting up really actually for the real healing. Life was moving in a better direction, but now we're getting to the part where the healing is going to come. In Genesis 42 to 50, you get a very detailed, and I would encourage you to read it this week. It'd be good devotional material. We're not going to go through all the details today because I don't want to keep you here all morning and we have a second service, you know, but uh, I encourage you to read it all this week. It's, it's an amazing, incredible story, but basically, when Joseph is being in charge of all this, now in the seven years of famine, distributing all the, the food, people from other nations are coming to get some, including his brothers. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. It's this emotional thing for him. Uh, he does this, like, testing and stuff like that. Again, we're not going to get into all the details of it, but basically what ends up happening is that he reunites with his brothers and reconnects with them. And he ends up actually having them bring their whole family, including his father, who loves him so much, he said, bring them down to Egypt. I will take care of you here. Because I have all this here. Come down. And Israel and his sons moved down to Egypt and are provided for by Joseph. Where our lesson comes is towards the tail end of this, where not only have they moved down to Egypt, but now Israel has died. And Joseph's brothers are now thinking, is this where the fire is really going to come out? Like, what if Joseph was just being nice to us for the sake of our dad? What if now... Now it all comes out. Because they know what they did. And they know how much they hurt him. What is going to happen now? So they come before him and just like, okay, come on. Like, they have this whole thing. They want to tell him that hopefully he's going to, to, to not come down on them. It's here that we can begin to see how God is really healing hearts. We're told that Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. 
They had every reason to be afraid, right? I mean, to think about the hurt they did, selling him off to slavery and, and all these things that happened. And by the way, between the time that he was sold off to slavery to this point, there's 13 years. and This is a process. And you come before him, and now he's the second most powerful man in Egypt. He could do anything to you. And Joseph's response is, don't be afraid. It's, it's remarkable. Don't be afraid. He, he's, he asks this question, though. Then he, he, he says, am I in the place of God? Which has been a, a question that I've been pondering this week. So what does that mean? What is the place of God? If he's going to ask, am I in the place of God, what is, what is he referring to? What does that mean? What does it mean to be in the place of God? One of the things that, that it means, and that we see this, not necessarily in the words of Joseph right here, but it's, it's a repeated theme throughout Scripture, is that God is in the place of bringing justice when things have gone wrong. God has a heart for those who have been hurt. God has a heart for those who have been wronged. And God brings justice. It's one of the things that is repeated over and over again. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God is the ultimate justice bringer. And one of the things when you think about God in, in, in his place is that sometimes we feel like we need to hold a grudge or we need to set things right. The reality is God is taking care of that. It might feel like we let people off the hook when we say, I forgive you, but that's not what Christian forgiveness is. This is something, if you've ever been to a, a wedding that I've officiated, I say this every wedding sermon, and I always tell the, the husband, or the bride and groom, that I'm going to. Like, this will be part of your sermon because it's so important for us as Christians because our world so misunderstands it. When you say, when somebody wrongs you and somebody says, I'm sorry, what do we typically say? What do people often say? When you say, when you say I'm sorry. It's okay. Right? They say, oh, it, it, it's okay. It wasn't okay. Right? If it was okay, they wouldn't have said I'm sorry to begin with. And that's not what Christian forgiveness is. Christian forgiveness is not saying it's okay. Christian forgiveness is saying that it's not my job to bring justice. God's taking care of that. It's saying that all the justice that every wrong thing ever, that, that all, all the justice that those wrong things deserve have all already been placed on Jesus. And the full payment that that sin deserves has been met. And so I don't have to try to pay this person back because Jesus already paid the debt. And maybe that person doesn't believe in Jesus, and so then they don't receive what Jesus has done, but then God will take care of that punishment too. It is not my job. I don't have to carry the weight of trying to settle the score. I don't have to hold the grudge. I don't have to try to punish them. God takes care of the justice. And let's be honest, he's a lot better at it than we are anyway. When we recognize what God's place is and we ask, am I in the place of God? That's where some of the healing starts. But there's more that Joseph says here. That is fascinating to see where he goes. 
He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The word intended, it's this cool picture in the Hebrew language. The, the language that the Old Testament was, was primarily written in. It basically means to weave together. So you then we're like weaving a basket and you take all the parts and you weave all the parts together and then you get this hole. And he says, you were trying to weave this together to hurt me. But God was weaving this whole thing together for good. To benefit. Now, th there's two things that are happening here at the same time that we need to recognize that these two things can coexist. Okay? Joseph doesn't deny that they were meaning something bad here. He doesn't. Right? He doesn't say, you know, I, you know what? You guys were stressed out. You guys are jealous of my coat. It's not a big deal. You know, like we kind of do that, right? Sometimes like we take the response. He's like, no, you guys intended to harm me. It is what it is. Right? It's just like we, we don't let people off the hook for different things. Like this is real. That's true. But as much as they intended to harm you, to harm, harm him, our God is so big that he can actually use the bad intentions of people to achieve a good purpose. It's not that God is doing it. It was their bad intentions, right? God didn't do the bad thing, but God can use the bad thing to do something good. And he, this is, this is what God does. This, this, is, this is how the gospel works. And you can see with, with Joseph's life, this, this incredible thing where he, he ends up becoming this, this leader in Egypt and, and God uses him to, to feed all these people. He uses him to preserve the line of Israel. That in and of itself is amazing. But when you dig in a little bit here to these words, there's even more that it points to that is amazing. If you, so you look at Genesis chapter 50, that's the last chapter in Genesis, okay? If you go back to the early parts of Genesis, we have the story of how sin came into the world. Do you remember what the name of the tree is that God said not to eat from? It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The word there that's translated evil is the same word that's translated harm here. We have an interesting thing going on here. Those two words are paired here in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, just like they were paired in the scene of the tree. Adam and Eve looked at the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, good and harm. You could translate it that way. And instead of trusting God, they did their own thing and brought harm and hurt and brokenness into this world. And now the bookend of the book of Genesis shows us that God says, okay, you brought harm and brokenness and hurt into this world. And I can use that to heal this world. God can use what hurt to heal. And, and if, the greatest way, of course, he does this is in Jesus. This whole story, if you look at the Joseph story, there's so many ways that it points, it points to Jesus. But i got to show you one especially that caught my light bulb for me this week. I'm sure I'm not the first person who noticed this. It's probably in commentaries and stuff, but I just never noticed it before. A similarity between the Joseph story and Jesus that just, when, I, when, it, when it light bulbed to me, I went, Whoa. When I was rereading the story of, how Joseph, of Joseph, the brother who said, let's sell him off in slavery was Judah. 
when Jesus is living, by this point, the, north, the ten tribes, the northern ten tribes, are gone. They've been taken off. The tribe that remains is the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah handed over Jesus to the Romans, to the foreign power, to be killed. And if that weren't striking enough, which disciple handed Jesus over and betrayed him? Judas. You know what the name Judas is? Judah. It's the same name. Judah handed Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver and betrayed his brother. Just like Judah said, let's sell Joseph to these slave traders. This story is directly, it points right to Jesus. And in Jesus, we see the alternate way that God takes, like, takes something evil, horrible, for good. I mean, you can't, you can't have a more horrible thing than God's own people betraying, his, betraying him and killing him. And yet, God took their betrayal and used it as part of his plan to have his innocent son die the death that we deserve in order to take away our sins, to pay for our guilt, so that justice would be met for each of us. God used the ultimate intention of harm to bring the ultimate good. The gospel is that God worked even through man's terrible intentions to bring our forgiveness, to bring about justice, to bring about healing, so we could be right with him and right with each other. And when we see that the core of the gospel is that God used man's terrible intentions to do something that good, it kind of brings this passage, Romans 8.28, to life, in an, in, at least for me, in a new way. Like, this passage is almost cliche. Well, you know God works everything for good. Everything, including the bad intentions and actions of people. God, God is going to use this for a good purpose. We see where Joseph's mind is, is that God is weaving here. Even all of this mess for something good. And that's what's going on in his mind and his heart. And as that sinks in, God works through that healing hearts, healing our heart so it can heal, we can heal the hearts of those around us too. Our lesson, it wraps up, it says, uh, so don't be afraid, I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Pastor Krause and I will often point out where the English translation is really lame sometimes. This is one of the most lame ones, where it says, spoke kindly. When I was translated it this week, I don't know if I've ever had this happen before. I literally teared up when I translated out of the Hebrew. It doesn't say he spoke kindly to them. It says he spoke to their hearts. He's so healed that here his brothers are from, and, and he speaks right to their heart. Like, 
is remarkable. He speaks to the hearts of his brothers who had hurt him so much. And that's what we're invited into as Christians that we get to do. We can be so changed that we can speak to the hearts of people who have hurt us. Now you might say, Pastor, that's crazy. And you, you, I, I can't just do that today. And I'm not expecting you necessarily to just do that today. You might be thinking, how, you might even be a little bit angered by this idea. I mean, you don't know how they hurt me, Pastor. I'm not telling you to pretend it didn't happen. Remember, that's not what forgiveness is. And I'm not telling you you can do it today or that you're going to do it today. That would fly in the face of what we learned last week with Abram. Sanctification is a process. And he didn't get it all at one time. Actually, he didn't even really get it in his, whole, in his earthly life. The promise was fully realized after he died. But there is a day where that promise is realized for Abram, right? And the same thing for us. There will be a day. There will be a day where we won't have to say, you know, we're, you know we should forgive them. It'll come naturally. There will be a day where there won't be the hurt anymore. Last week, uh, this last Monday was All Saints Day, and uh, where we celebrate all the people who have been brought to faith in Christ, set apart, and that someday we're going to be united not just with God, but we're going to celebrate with all the people who are, who are with us today, but also all those who have gone before. It's going to be like a big team victory. It's going to be where we're all at one united heart. And on that day, whoever it is that hurt you will be there if they're, if they're in Christ, and you won't have to work to forgive them. You will be happy they are there. You will. It seems impossible sometimes. But resurrection seems impossible. A world without sin seems impossible. God does the impossible. There will be a day where you will celebrate them. I gotta tell you, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, partly because sometimes there's, there's, there's Christians, there's people that I know who I know are brothers and sisters in Christ, and honestly, they just grind me. I have such a hard time sometimes around them. And so what I've been doing is I think about, you know, there's going to be a day where they're not going to grind me. And I'm going to be super happy when I see them. And if the God who's going to do that in my heart someday is working in me now, which he is, then by the power of the Spirit, I can start to see them differently today. There's going to be a day where you are fully healed. And that God who's going to do that in you someday is working in you today. Because he's the God of healing hearts. We're just about done with this journey of a lesson today. But there's one final thing we've got to hit before, before we wrap up. Is sometimes when you think about being hurt, the hardest person to forgive is not the person who did it to you, but it's yourself. You know the thing you said that you shouldn't have said? Maybe the way that you weren't there for somebody, the way you should have been there for somebody? Sometimes that's the hardest, hardest one. And sometimes we don't have conversations to heal relationships with people because it's not just that they did wrong, but we know that we would have to confess that we have done wrong, and it's really hard to deal with that. And so for those hurts, hear your brother Jesus say, don't be afraid. 
You may have intended it to harm. You may have done wrong. But God intended it for good. He's going to use it. Your brother Jesus says, God used the greatest, our Father used the greatest hurt of all, me dying on a cross, to pay for what you've done wrong. You are forgiven. Your guilt is removed. Hear him speak to your heart. Do not be afraid. I will provide for you. And when he speaks to your heart, and the Spirit works in your heart, not only is he able to heal your heart, but he can overflow to heal the hearts of the people around you too. We have a God of healing hearts.